one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So if you can imagine, I'm in the prone, engaging the enemy, facing them, and one of the guys pops up, shoots an RPG, goes right over my head, and hits the building behind me. And that blast picks me up, throws me up against another wall, and then you know has a bunch of injuries involved. And right around that time, the rest of my detachment got back to us, and we pulled back into the building. Um, I just sustained some pretty pretty nasty injuries to my lower body. Here we are. This week on the podcast, I'm talking to Zach Hughes. Zach is the Chief Operations Officer of Elite Meat, an American-based non-profit talent collective that comprises of ex-Special Operations Forces and other elite veterans. Zach himself was a Green Beret and served in Afghanistan in 2016-17. This one is awesome, so strap yourself in and enjoy. Welcome to the Warrior You podcast, proudly presented by our parent company, Hindsight Leadership and Resilience. I'm your host, Bram Connolly, and this then is my show. A massive shout out to the podcast sponsors, Ironside Coffee and Gym Equipment Specialists, Aussie Strength, and of course, not forgetting Special Operations Research and Development, Sword Australia, for all your tactical equipment and clothing needs. Righto, let's get on with the show. Hey, Zach. Graham, how you doing? That uh, that was the longest intro ever. It's the first time I've ever pressed the button on the intro and just let it sort of cruise on out. And I realised it's like a minute and eight, and we're both just sitting there looking <laughs> at each other. No, no worries, um, no worries. I'm in I'm in the new uh, Warrior You podcast studio, which is in um, the Liberty offices here in Perth, and their serviced offices. Um, and I, I I don't know. I think the sound actually isn't too bad, and the internet is super stable for me at this end anyway so that's pretty cool that's just a shout out to them because they help pay the rent um zach hughes from elite meat uh ex green bray i don't know what else is that it i guess that's it coo of elite meat former green bray actually just left the service in august yeah right of this year august of 2019 so it's only been a few months yeah and i mean you know uh, really recent combat experience in Afghanistan as well in 16 and 17. We'll get to that in a while. But um, tell me about Elite Meat. Where did that come from? How did you how did you come up with the whole concept for Elite Meat? So to be fair, I didn't come up with the concept. A good friend of mine who's a Navy SEAL that used to be in SEAL Team 2 came up with the concept. Um, and as he was getting out, he was getting out while I was actually in Afghanistan. Um, and he started the wheels in motion doing that with a banker from Wall Street. And they started connecting the dots with his network of SEALs getting out and the banker's network, uh, people in New York City. And they started having these meetups. And it was very small, kind of grassroots, uh, just a few guys that are getting out looking to go into business. And they expanded it. And then I kind of had the pulse of what was going on. 
And I was at the time I was going to stay in the military. So I was really just helping when I could trying to filter in some green beret guys, uh, you know, not much involvement from me early on because I was still focused on, on being a green beret. Um, and then my, my time at, at the service ended. So I became rapidly more involved in elite meat uh, and helped try to scale it to the, to what it is today. And it, it was great. I just realized that behind every good SF guy is a Navy SEAL. Oh, Jesus. Do you agree with that? <laughs> no, I don't agree with that for a second. You guys are crazy. <laughs> Both of you. Yeah, I've got, when, as soon as you said that uh, it was founded by a Navy SEAL, I saw Chandler turn around and look at me and started listening because obviously my headset's blaring. <laughs> now, now he's paying attention. <laughs> yeah, now he's paying attention, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so you know, the, the, the concept, how does it work? So essentially what we have is uh, if you're in special operations and so you when it was only been the United States military at first, and now I've got some guys from other countries coming in and you want to pivot to business. So if you specifically want to go into business, so tech, finance, banking, be an entrepreneur, do something like that, uh, private equity, you come find us because we've built over the last few years, a really robust network of individuals and we can connect you with hard to access jobs. The stakeholders in a lot of these organizations want to hire winners. They don't care if you have an MBA or not. They want you to come in and they want you to win. Mm. And what we have is we have a talent pool, as you're very aware of, of guys who will come in and, and lead and just hit the ground running and not be afraid and be kind of slow or anything like that. So what we do is we do large conferences, one a quarter, uh, where we connect our guys. Right now we've got about 800 active members that are transitioning out of this. Sorry, so you said 800 members at the moment? Correct, yeah, 800 members that are transitioning out right now. That is amazing. That's a lot. Yeah, it's grown quite a bit in the last few years. It's actually rapid growth in 19, pretty much the entire year. It was just month over month, double returns. Uh, we started landing people at really high rates. And what we're finding now is, is because we've been around for a few years, we're getting the grandfather clause is what I like to call it. People that have been hired in great spots are turning around and they're not only telling their friends, but they're telling organizations to come into Elite Meet to get some of the, the talent that we have essentially. Yeah, I was going to say that once you start getting a few high performers through the door yep. and they start showing their value to organizations, then, then those organizations are going to say, Hey, is there any more of your flavor out there? Exactly. And it's been the same way, not only that, but also on the teams, we've got a lot of guys in no matter what special operation branch you come from that may want to go not into contracting, but want to go into business. Yeah. So those people, if you want to do that, they're reaching out to elite me because there's nothing else like it. Yeah. The thing, the thing I've always sort of loved about um, the operational deployment alpha guys um, so the U.S. Green Berets, they do more with less. So yeah, that's, that's pretty fundamental. Yeah, pretty fundamental in the training and just the lifestyle in general. Don't have a lot of assets, and you're kind of required to go into a country and live on your own. It's sometimes, most of the time, and kind of deal with what you got. Yeah. So you're raising an indigenous force. You've got the pack on your back, and any resupply that's been brought into you, and you have to use all of the sort of economic uh, levers that you can, all the social levers that you can you know, the medical levers, all those sort of things to, to get the mission completed. So they do more with less. And I, I reckon that would, I reckon, I think that would translate really well into into the business world once they start to understand that operating environment. Absolutely. So specifically for the ODA guys, for the Green Berets, you've got a mixed bag of talents because you've probably worked on budgets, you've worked on procurements, you've bought things in a country, you've done the wide spectrum of, of jobs because you're the only people that are doing it. Yeah. So when you can finally articulate how to sell that to an organization and stamp that with a special forces background, as long as you're a go-getter, you're going to be fine. Yeah. And then so with, with guys like the, the Navy SEALs, you know, that we're talking now about mission 
sets that quite often are outside the range and scope of other units. And so for, for them, they're either the first in or they're setting conditions. So those sort of guys would then, you know, they would then go out into the corporate world and it's like, well, now we've got a mission and we'll get this done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's absolutely right. Yeah, it's such an interesting, interesting thing, isn't it? Because we do sort of become the persona of the military becomes our personal persona. And then when you leave... You know, quite often a lot of people have that separation anxiety that, and and sometimes that is confused as post traumatic stress. I think, but w- what we're really talking about is they've never left high performing teams and they're out there by themselves. And what makes that easier is if you're surrounded by other people who are your flavour from high performing teams. But now your mission's just changed. You're no longer out there setting the conditions for you know the reconnaissance and then a follow on force for a, for an attack. You're out there setting the conditions for a merger or a takeover or, you know, doing some sort of a business deal. You know, it's interesting that you say that. What we found in 2019 is a lot of the NFL teams in American football started reaching out to us. We went and spoke to the New England Patriots, which is one of the more famous football teams here, um, because what what they're feeling is they see an identity crisis in their guys that are transitioning out. You know, not everybody is in the NFL for 20 years. Matter of fact, most of the guys that go play in for a year to three years very similar sometimes to special forces guys in the united states army you have an identity crisis because you're wrapped up in one thing and you're transitioning from an elite team and so i think that that's exactly what happens is that you're wrapped up in exactly what you do and you're sort of sheltered if you're on a special forces team doesn't matter what country or which unit or which branch you're sheltered from the rest of the world and you have one community and you have one goal and you just put everything into it and it's very similar for the nfl teams that i'm starting to figure out here in, in 2020 now is that they're shifting from the exact same identity crisis that we have. Yeah, and what I always say to people who reach out to me and want to join the Army or the Navy, the Air Force, but in particular Special Forces direct recruiting guys, so that ab initio off the street, what I always say to them is you have to join the Defence Force or the military, in your case, with a view to getting out. And that view to getting out could be in three years or it could be, in my case, like in 20 years, but you have to go in on that first day to set yourself up for success to then depart. Because if you don't do that, what ends up happening is you get to the end of your tenure and and then you just make it up because they haven't actually planned anything to get out. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that for a lot of people, they don't plan to get out when they do or they get too wrapped up in what they're doing and don't really facilitate and think about what they're going to do afterwards, especially if you're retiring. I think that there's a big difference in individuals when they're retiring from the military service or when they plan to get out after they've been in for seven or eight years. For me, I was fortunate enough to have about a year of runway of surgeries. I had an accident that, that was injured um, to really facilitate my transition. So I had one year specifically, almost exactly to the day where they were like, Zach, you gotta, you're done here. You're kind of wrapped up. And I was able to kind of switch the mindset for me and kind of look and, and see what I was going to do afterwards. Yeah. So what job were you doing in the ODA? I was the echo guy. So if you're familiar with the, the ODA branches, which I know you are. So uh, what, what they're called is 18 series for any of your listeners that don't understand. Um, and each guy has a different specialty, which is probably similar to the makeup that you guys have over there. And for me, it was communications. So I did all of our communications on the special forces team and I loved it. That's actually not what I wanted to do originally. I wanted to be the medic. Um, and they told me no. And then later they came and asked me if I wanted to go to the medic school, but it's a little bit longer. It was like 10 months long. And then I'd already internalized that I was going to be in communications. At least you weren't the Zulu. You know, I tell you what, 
that's a lot of work for those guys. Yeah. And um, I was fortunate enough to have an amazing Zulu, the, the team sergeant, who was an incredible leader, still a really good friend of mine. Yeah, no, nah, it's cool. And so um, 2016, whereabouts were you deployed? So I was on the east side, mostly Nangahar, right there, um, if you're familiar with where Logar is. Yep. So if you, if you drew Afghanistan uh, and kind of broke it into quadrants, we were mainly on the east side. Yeah. Um, so 2000, let's see, February of 2017, um, so we were deployed on the east side. Of, so above above Kandahar on the on the right hand side, as you look at it, up towards Zabul. Exactly. Spot that's the on. Badlands, mate. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty nasty at the time. Um, yeah. I had a blast up until I left, but it was um, it was at the time actually Barack Obama was the president of the United States, and while we were there, Trump had already won the election. And so when, when I was in country, they shifted the policies. So it was the time where they, they actually switched the presidency. So Obama left and Trump came in. And if you're familiar with how it works, essentially the entire cabinet's gone. So the secretary of defense, national security advisors, all of them switch out whenever there's a new president. Yeah, right. So when you go from having a Democrat to Republican ca- cabinet, not just necessarily the president. Yeah, right. So that cabinet changed out and then they, they switched to – to looking more, focusing more on ISIS than Al-Qaeda. Um, yeah, and I suppose the funding changed as well. Yeah, it was well, the funding, the rules of engagement, almost oh, everything right. changed. It took about two weeks, um, but almost everything that we were doing changed. And fundamentally, um, really the, the restrictions that we had were almost lifted within a couple of weeks, and we had a lot of freedom of movement inside the country. Yeah, right. And um, any, big, any big sort of combat stories out of that that you want to share? Yeah. So, um, right after, here's a pretty interesting story. So right after president Trump came in, in the middle of the night, one night, he rounded up all the special forces, ODA's officers, all the ones in country, rounded them up, brought them to the Pentagon. Uh, and they met with the secretary of defense who was there at the time who left afterwards. And I didn't know about it. And he said, Hey guys, um, how do we fix it? How do we win the war in Afghanistan? And there's a bunch of officers who were not prepared to do that and didn't have a clue what they're going into. They had no scripts, they had no one else telling them. They had no agendas. It was like on the ground, what's your intel? Like, what do you, how do we fix this? So what they told them is they told them we should go after ISIS because we weren't going after ISIS at all. Matter of fact, we couldn't because the rules of engagement. And he said, okay, well, where are they at? And he told them they're, they're all in Nangahar in these, these provinces and these small villages that we'd never been to. Mm. So when they got back, that's exactly what we did. We shifted our, shifted our mindset, shifted our trip. We went and did a, what was a 33-day mission sweeping out ISIS and some of the Nangahar villages on the eastern side of the country. And I was there for 28 days. During that time period, we lost a few guys. If you're familiar with any of the American history, we dropped the Moab bomb, uh, which is the mother of all bombs. Yeah, uh, It was like the largest non-nuclear weapon ever used in the, in the arsenal period. Pretty intense combat scene for the time. Uh, and then what, what ended, up, ended up happening was my um, inevitable me- medical retirement because I took an RPG during one of those battles yeah. and sustained quite a few injuries. And that's why I ended up leaving the teams. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've dropped a few 500 pounders and I've even been pretty close to a couple of thousand pounders um, from some B1s and I mean, hundreds of meters away. And they were, that was insane. I still remember all the, I still remember the platoon down in the green belt laughing afterwards, like it was that big. And everyone started laughing because it was out of shock, I think. But what was the Moab like? Uh, it was pretty intense. So I was pretty far away at the time. I'd already 
taken the RPG um, mm-hmm. and I'd kind of moved on. But a lot of the guys, so I, I was robbed of that experience because I was moving away. All right. um, but a lot of the guys on my, my company were still there. They were the ones that dropped it. Yeah. Um, so everybody essentially pulled out. It was because we we're taking heavy casualties. Yeah. Uh, that, that escalation of force was necessary. Um, but everyone around was really far back. We were, yeah. we were dropping what, what are called high Mars. I don't know if you're familiar with those, um, but they're, they're the, the ones that come from the ground. So they're not from the air. Uh, they're like 2,500 pounds. So those were pretty common that we were using at the time. Um, and they were, they're massive. So everyone that explained to me specifically that was there, like, dude, this was, inc- this was crazy. Mm. I did see the aftermath and some of the videos and some of the stuff the guys had on the ground yeah. and just demolished the entire mountain. Wow. We, um, we found a cache in a bazaar market bazaar. The cache was underground and it wasn't defended. You could, poke your head in sort of the manhole cover and look under there with torches. And it was just a room the size of, oh, I guess 10 Abrams tanks would fit in there. And it was yeah. full to the ceiling of RPGs and homemade explosives and mines and all this sort of stuff. So we thought probably the best thing to do is to destroy it. And what we'll do is just put a timed satchel charge in there. So the engineers set that all up and then we, we pulled back about a kilometre <laughs> It went off, and when when it went off, you you remember those? You remember the glass that you sometimes see in the walls in the Afghan inside the Afghan buildings? There, that real thick glass that 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 shattered in every single building in the village we were in. And I remember, (laughs) I remember the wall that I was leaning against. So it was one of those massive, like eight foot thick walls. I watched it bend from the blast. And the the um, the dust plume went up like a nuclear bomb, and we all looked at each other and just, well, that was crazy. What did they have in there? But it was just the the net, you know, the NEQ of the of the amount of explosives that were in there. It was absolutely you could you could have waged a war with it. Funnily enough, they did. Um, but yeah, I can't even imagine what that Moab must must have been like for the guys. So yeah, so um, tell me about the the last thing you remember prior to the RPG hitting. Was it the vehicle that it hit or just were you actually out on the ground? I, I was on the ground. So I actually remember most of it and I'm not quite sure to be honest if I remember all of it because of the stories people have told me, mm. there's some videos of it as well. Um, or if it's just my memory, I have no idea. So it's a, a little hazy as you can imagine. Mm. Um, but between either people telling me or me watching the video, I feel like I, I remember everything. Mm. Um, so what happened basically is we were, we we're clearing out the villages during this 30 day operation uh, to eradicate ISIS from the area. And I was on a security position with a good friend of mine and we got ambushed. It was a linear ambush by about 30 ISIS guys. And what they had was a tunnel system set up, an elaborate tunnel tunnel system like you've seen all over Afghanistan. Um, but in this specific spot, they had waited for us for about 10 years to come. They just started slowly building it. And it was pretty detailed. They essentially took a page out of Vietnam and had all these tunnels set up. So they were coming, popping up, popping up different areas and things like that. Um, and before our guys could get back to us to kind of assist, it just went, it went a little crazy. And one of the guys shot an RPG right over my head. So if you can imagine, I'm in the prone, engaging the enemy, facing them. Um, and one of the guys pops up, shoots an RPG, goes right over my head and hits the building behind me. Uh, so there's a building behind me. Um, and that blast picks me up, throws me up against another wall. Um, and then, you know, has a bunch of injuries in, involved. And right around that time, 
the rest of my detachment got back to us and we pulled back into the building um, and made sure that everything was okay and there was no immediate danger. I was never in a position where I was fighting for my life or anything like that. Um, I just sustained some pretty pretty nasty injuries to my lower body. Uh, specifically, if you can imagine in the prone with shrapnel coming from behind you. Oh, God. Um, this doesn't get good for me. I had a, this is, yeah, I don't know how detailed you may get, but I don't mind doing it. Um, a lot of my lower body was kind of beat up scratched all my growing area was a complete disaster that's where the bulk of my injuries came to um i spent most of 2019 in a cat or most of 2018 in a catheter uh just reworking the system down there and having some issues um and then after that you know i had to get a new hip and and a new knee and a couple other things um but i will tell you that we took care of the problem uh so that was good oh good to hear man that sucks yeah. yeah, it did suck. It still it continues to suck, to be honest. Um, but for me, you know, it's, it's interesting. I was the only echo on the ground. Mm. So I was the only communications guy on the ground. Here's the no bullshit story of this. Yeah, so here's the no bullshit story of this. So I was, because of that, I was like not wanting to get medevaced, not wanting to leave at all. So I just internalized everything. I didn't really know what was going on. I wasn't bleeding a lot, but I was pretty shredded. Uh, you know, as you can imagine, my pants were pretty jacked up. So, like you, everything so, was your, so your groin, your ass, the inside of your legs is all shredded and you're staying in field so you could talk on the radio. Well, if I leave, we all leave. Um, and that's just the reality of it. So what, what about, we didn't what have about, any other errors. There, so. there, no, there was no one else who could, there was no one else who could use the radio. Yeah, there is. It's just, that's just not how it's briefed. Mm. So uh, if, if someone else at say the siege of soda or the AOBs, you know, the, the leadership essentially in the middle of the country is like, Hey, they don't have a communications guy. I was also controlling the air assets. Um, so because of that, it would have been a complete mess. We, we have um, a, same. so in my mind, I don't, I don't even know that this is accurate to be honest with you. Yeah. This is just me internalizing this. Yeah, yeah. This is literally what, what's going through my head. I don't know if this is right. What, what would have happened, but I'm like, I got, you know, it is. I'm like, I got to stay in here. I don't matter what's going on. You can't take me off of this because if I leave, I literally let the entire country down. I'm letting my team down and that's just not an option. So I'm like, I'm okay. It's fine. No big deal. And to be clear, I just want to make sure we're clear here. Everything was like, everything was decently working, right? Uh, I, I didn't have, I didn't need like a bunch of tourniquets. I had gotten some serious head wounds um, and I was a little woozy and definitely seeing stars. And I was, had quite a bit of bleeding uh, in my growing area but nothing that needed immediate care. And I really thought that I was going to be fine. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I was at. Yeah. We, we have a saying, um, you know, in special forces, I'm sure it's probably wider than that now. Um, you know, two is one, one is none. So if you've got, if you've got a signaler, well, then you need to train someone else to be the signaler as well. So that you've got two of them. So like if you've got a long gun then you've got a pistol as well, because if your long gun goes down, you've got, you know, a pistol. So yeah, yeah it's, a, and it's, it's one of those things. I agree isn't that it? that all makes sense, but I got to be honest with you. In the moment, yeah. I'm sure you can understand. I don't want anybody else having to do, do my know, job. Do you know, if you, I can, if I can do this, yeah. you're nobody. Nobody else is doing it for me. I tell you how much I can understand. On on one of the and guys guys and girls that listen to my podcast have probably heard this story a couple of times, but I'll I'll do the abridged version. We one of the worst days of my life was was made that way because of a decision that I made to leave some special equipment behind. And we, we got pulled into a, um, sucked into a village, an abandoned village. And then there was a, a guy setting off remote controlled IEDs on us. And the blasts from those IEDs, they, they, well, they didn't kill anyone, 
one of them was so close to myself and one of the other guys that I was completely combat ineffective. And it wasn't from yeah. shrapnel. It wasn't from anything other than just the shock of that blast and just trying to yeah. – my senses were knocked out of me for a while. And, I, and we actually um, one of my one of my guys – um, one of the support elements who, um, yeah, who was a a, sig- one, a type of signaler, let's just say. <laughs> he, um, Fair enough. Yeah, he was uh, evacuated because the blast was so close to him that he just started throwing up and he wasn't injured in any way. Yeah. yeah. But, it, I mean, an RPG is, is not as big a bang as that. But it- Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If it's if it's on a wall behind no. you and that blast is contained, then it doesn't take much. A couple of you know, a couple of hundred grams of explosives in a contain in a in a in a contained area it will knock you knock you rotten for a week. Yeah. So for me, I no no vomiting. I've, I've been in a situation where I vomited from a blast before. This mm. didn't happen on this one at all. Mm. Um, and it was mo- mainly because of the exact situation you're talking about right now. Mm. The blast hit the wall behind me. I was outside of the building. So it's not contained at all. The, the majority of the injuries that I had were from the shrapnel, from the wall, from the everything that blew back at me. Yeah, dust is dust is brutal. Dust and it rocks is, and yeah, shit's brutal. It's funny. It's funny. You don't think of it that way, but mm. just the pebbles that are laying on the ground that come flying at, at you know two hundred miles an hour mm. are, are going to be an issue for something that it hits. Mm. Yeah. And so you you went back in. Was that in sixteen? That one. That was in, it was in February of 17. 17. Okay. So that was, in the, that was your second deployment there or that was your main so that, deployment there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll get, I get it now. So 16, 17. Um, yeah. Right. And so back into the States and then, you know, I, I've seen you on LinkedIn and I guess when I first saw you on LinkedIn, I was like, who is this dude? Why is he so positive about everything? <laughs> yeah, man. So I think that I gotta be honest with you. You know, I, I, I took a page out of my own book and I'm so upset with myself for internalizing that situation with that RPG and just lying about it and staying in the moment and like just pushing it all apart. I I really thought to myself that I didn't want to get care. I didn't want to leave the team and that continued all through the trip. And that continued when I got home, it was just stupid. And I I really, it crystallized in my mind that you just got to be brutally honest about everything that happens and you've got to stay positive and you got to understand like there's a lesson in everything. And so for me on LinkedIn, I got to be honest with you, that's more for me than anybody else. It's me telling the world exactly how I think it is Mm. and then preaching and exactly like being the person that I want to be. Yeah. And we, we have a thing in Australia with, um, it's, it's a, it's a very cultural thing. It's the tall poppy syndrome. If we see someone who is making themselves look to be better than others, then we, we, we tend to cut them down, you know, and, and in some ways, I think it's a really bad cultural trait because someone like yourself, when I first saw you on LinkedIn, I was like, this guy's just an upstart. Like, he's just like preaching all this stuff. And then I started to follow you more and I was like, wow, this guy really is coming from a good place. Like, he, he's trying to help people and especially that transition because transition is such a difficult period for our warfighters. And I think I saw something on, on Facebook the other day where someone said, oh, 
you know, they were talking about me and they were like, oh, well, if he was a real special forces soldier, you know, he wouldn't be telling everyone about it. I'm like, yeah, no, no, you're right, mate. I had a 20-year military career and I'm not allowed to fucking talk about it when I leave, you dickhead. Like, why wouldn't yeah, I, you know, why wouldn't it, I use so this funny. experience, you dickhead? You know, like, so yes. I, didn't, I didn't bite back. I just let it go. No, and I, I, gotta be, I get that often. I get that very often. Um, and I think it's, it's just a cultural thing because I, w- I want to give you an example. When I was in the military, I was in Afghanistan um, and I was at a team was there and uh, some other Green Berets that were in the National Guard. And they were telling me about this other Green Beret who they hated and they didn't like him. And they were just like kind of bad mouthing him. And his name was Tim Kennedy. Oh, and yeah. so I, and I was like, oh, well, yeah, I don't like him either. And it just made sense. Um, and, I was, and then I looked him up and he was like so public about being a Green Beret. And in my mindset, I was like, this is obviously this is before even and this has would, been a while. And he would beat the shit I out me- of any of those dudes. <laughs> oh, dude. And, and I immediately was like, oh, I don't like him either. Yeah, like course, he, he yeah. shouldn't be doing that. Um, and then it's just so clear to me how you kind of if you evolve as a person. And it's like, man, you know, what was I thinking back then? Like I, I, I was just so clear to myself that I remember thinking, oh, I don't I don't like him either because he shouldn't be doing that for yeah. no reason, for no reason at all, except for only ignorance. And that's exactly what it yeah. was. And so for the transition piece, I see so many guys now, like literally hundreds who come from that spot that I was right now. Like back then when I'm talking about, like people were talking about Tim and I was like, I don't like him either to where I'm at now. And I watch their transition. Mm. And it's just so clear once you step out that, you know, nobody's going to care that you were a Navy SEAL or Green Beret. That doesn't matter in life, especially if you want to go work in business. Mm. You've got to be able to sell the skills that you learn just like anyone in any other industry in the world. There's a... There's a Victoria Cross winner in Australia, Mark Donaldson. Uh, Chandler, what's a Victoria Cross the same as Medal of Honor? Um, yeah, and so nice. Yeah, and Mark Donaldson is a. We we were actually on the same rotation twice. Um, I had to, I had to tell him that he obviously didn't know that, um, but we're on the same rotation and in Afghanistan. And he's a, he's such a lovely bloke. He's a really good bloke, and he's a warrior too. Like he'd go back in a heartbeat, as would I. Yeah. And we were at a dinner together um, a couple of years ago now, I think, maybe a bit over a year ago, and I was telling him about what I was up to now. And I was expecting him, you know, I've written a couple of military fiction books and I'm writing a leadership book and I've got a, a, I've got a business that's around being ex-Special Forces, you know. And yeah. I told him that and I said, you know, I'm getting a little bit of pushback from some people in the unit, you know, who, who think it's, it's me grandstanding and that's, that's not my personality. And he goes to me, yeah, you know what, mate? You're just putting food on the table for your kids. Like, you're outside working. Like, they don't know what that's like yet. They, and you know what I mean? When you get out, it's a big, bad world out there and the, and, the, and the government is not paying you every fortnight anymore and you now need to create something, you know? And so I took – when he said that to me, I was like, if, you know, if a Victoria Cross winner can accept the fact that, you know, he's, he's one of our heroes, our national heroes, if he can accept that I've got to do something after I leave, then what, why should I have to be quiet about it all, you know? No, I completely agree. And to be honest with you – I have just turned that switch off. I don't even hear the negativity period. I just don't, I don't even hear it. I really don't even hear some of the positivity, Mm. but I'm just deaf tone to most of it. And because of that, it's a little bit easier for me. And I think I've just been accustomed to it throughout the last six or eight months that it's been. Um, And I know so many guys that are in the same position that we are here in the States that are green berets or former seals. And we all get the same amount of negativity. Mm. It's, it's more so than any other industry period. Um, but, you know, I've had so many guys that have said negative things and then came back to me and apologized later mm. or anything like that. It's just the clarity is not there. And I think that I'm in a position where I can understand 
because I was there. I was mm. literally in that spot as everyone else. Mm. Um, but I, I, I'm glad to hear that that guy's kind of giving the same advice because it's just so important. If, you, if you've got something that you need to do, then you need to do it. I don't mm. care what it is. And I don't mm. care what your background is. Like if you've got something that you're going to be good at, you have to capture that period. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I do draw a lot of strength from people like Andy Frisella as well. You know, what you see is what you get. It's just bloody. Yeah, it just is what Send it is, it. you know. And you just just do your thing because you're only alive for however many years. Just go and do it. Um, so there's a, there's a few ex Australian SF guys that I know um, who live in the US, and I think they'd probably benefit from from meeting up with you and and being involved in Elite Meat. Um, and and in particular, what does Elite Meat do once it once it gets someone and then links them up with someone else or how does that operate how does it work how do you once you link someone up with elite meat how does that then work how do the how do the people sort of how does it all work i guess financially um you know um, from a communications perspective from a so we've, we've got an app social. internally uh where, where everybody's connected basically we've built a marketplace so if you're a member of elite meat you came on board you went to the website you applied you went through a recruiting process. I've got an entire recruiting team um, and you get vetted and you finally get internalized. We give you the access to this app and inside of this app is all the members and the beauty of elite meet. And one of the profound reasons that I believe that it's where it's at now is because of this marketplace and this network that I built talking about jobs, talking about ways to help, talking about resources, talking about people to follow. And that's been a gold mine. So that's basically continuing to work when I'm not working, if that makes sense, or any of the employees yeah. of elite meet, everybody's helping themselves. Um, so that's like one of the big pillars of success for us. And on, internally, that's like one of the steps. So essentially you apply, you go through recruiting, you get vetted, you get added to the app, you get internalized in the community. We add you to an opt-in list. This opt-in list we give to all of our employers. It's just a, a cumbersome list of all the individuals. And then it's on you to update the opt-in list, sort of like your LinkedIn, so that you stay attractive to the people who are searching for the jobs. And then beyond that, we also pay for everyone to attend our events. We do quarterly events in San Francisco, Dallas, New York City, um, and we pay for about 40 to 50 of our transitioning guys to yeah. attend the, a one-week event. Wow, that's awesome. And it's only open to the special ops community? It's special ops and elite veterans. So there's a couple exceptions. It's 99% special operations, but we do accept 1% of the military that are not in special operations, and we also have the fighter pilot squadrons as well. So if you, if you winged as a fighter pilot, um, then you're good to go. So not just, not just, any other flying so, apparatus, but specifically a fighter pilot. So basically just not MARSOC. MARSOC's in because they're special operations. <laughs> oh, that was funny when I rehearsed it. Um, and so what about... <laughs> well, the, the, the Raiders um, the Raiders have some issues. So if you're familiar with the breakdown for the Marines, the, the Marine Raiders are actually, they don't fall under special operations. Yeah, right. Um, they fall under the, Mar the Marine special operations, but not SOCOM. Is that right? Um, so they have a bit of issues onboarding some of that stuff like with us because they don't fall under the umbrella. Yeah, right. A lot of people don't know that, but it is a yeah, little bit different. I didn't different. know that. Are you, are you, um, you going to branch out internationally? I would love to. Um, I, there hasn't been a big push for it. Um, and to be clear, our network is in-house in America. So we would need two things. Not only would we need the audience of special operations internationally, but we'd also need a network to be effective. And mm -hmm. I don't have a, a robust network in any of the other countries. So we'd have to start on both sides in order for it to work yeah. unless the international individuals were looking for the jobs in the U.S. Yeah. And that I could see being a little bit quicker route. Yeah, it's almost like having a, a portal there 
um, so that you know UK, Australian, New Zealand, Canadian, um, you know SF guys might be looking to to move over to the to the US to to work with some of those companies and perhaps perhaps having a portal there where they could apply. I reckon that'd be a great idea. Yeah, I I, I have never been in a position. So you, you got to understand, 2019 big growth for us, right? Now that we're at the 800 active members at any time. And we have plenty of guys that have already transitioned out that are still members yeah. that are looking for new jobs or didn't like their job and they're looking for a second job. Mm. Um, so it's definitely something that I would, I would love to entertain. We just got to get an infrastructure first. Yeah, right. And so what what tips would you give to anyone who's transitioning out of the community, getting out of the, out of the uh, military and then and looking to start a new life? I think that we hit on a really big one, and that is – just not listening to the negativity, number one. Mm. And what what I see a lot of people miss is that, especially if they're retiring. So if you've had a 20, 30 year awesome career and you're retiring, you've been in, been in this for a while and you're kind of in a situation where you'd like another job, but you're not really super hungry for it because you know you're going to retire and you've got some passive income coming in or whatever. Sometimes people sleep on that and they're not as hungry for it. And I'll be honest with you, I think that when you transition from special operations, that's harder than getting into special operations because you're so passionate about it. When I was training to be a green beret, everything fell into like into pieces. I loved doing it. I would wake up at four o'clock in the morning and do whatever they told me to do. Mm. And I would do it on my own because this is my dream. This is my passion. I was crushing it. I was absolutely dominating it. And I was our valedictorian when we graduated and I loved it. And it was the same for being on my team. What I wasn't excited about was transitioning into a civilian job. Yeah. And a lot of people that happens to, and they don't go for it and they don't work just as hard at it. And I would tell them that they need to work harder that they did as they did to be in special operations. So you've got to stay focused and keep grinding. Did you, did you do ranger school as well? Did you, Zach? No, no. So a, a lot of people think that if you're a green beret, you go to ranger school mm. and it's just not the truth. Uh, I, uh, we well, do have guys that not, go to ranger school. It's not, it's not anymore because, well, it's never been the truth, but, but it's less now because of the operational tempo. But back in the nineties and early two thousands, a lot of the green berets would go to ranger school. Well, the thing is, is that back in the 90s and early 2000s, most of the Green Berets came from the infantry first. They weren't coming off the streets. So if you were in the infantry or maybe you were airborne already, you probably went to ranger school at some point if you were hungry. If you're a hungry soldier that, that's going to go for a Green Beret, you probably had the opportunity to go to, green, to ranger school. Um, and what we're seeing now is guys like myself who come out of college and, and go in straight to becoming a Green Beret. I mean, it's two, year, two and a half years of training. Um, but you can, you have to be in the army first. Mm. So because of that, when you get to a team, there's a lot of schools to go to mm. that are, that are different than ranger school. Ranger school takes a long time. Mm. Um, and, and you just don't see people wanting to do it as much because there's other things that you can do that aren't open to the military that are kind of top secret or a secret, or they're just a little bit sexier than going to ranger school. So you definitely yeah. see less people going. I always counsel my guys that, that talk to me about it and say, if you want to stay in, you want to make this a career you you should go because you're immediately more competitive as a soldier period yeah. unquestionable and are you noticing a difference in the culture with the ab initio nature of uh of the recruits coming off the street as opposed to through infantry and then and maybe even from ranges is there is there been a difference do you think or, or does it is it talked about yeah it's definitely talked about and i just want to be clear i don't think it's negative mm. i think our, our culture is evolving mm. so of course if humans are evolving and technology and different people at different ages are evolving then naturally special operations be on evolve um, so i think people get kind of hung up on the gates of 
it was like this when I went through, and this is kind of how we were with this. So I, I'm sort of a guy that, that wants to constantly evolve with times. Um, so I see that the teams are evolving, and I don't think that's a bad thing. And I, I think that the culture of combat is evolving, period. This isn't 9-11, 2001. Yeah, when I was in, when I was in the special operations school, um, I was lucky enough to be there during a time where we reinvigorated the Special Forces Direct Recruiting Scheme. In 2007, we, we sort of reinvigorated it and, and put impetus on it and pushed it harder. Um, and I think the, the results really speak for themselves as far as you know, gallantry awards for those guys, a huge amount of, of them now in command positions. They, they just do bring a different, fresh perspective and, and in some cases not the old habits. Yeah, and I think they're just a little bit tougher too. I think that you could probably always say that. This is from my perspective, at least. Uh, if you were in Desert Storm, you would look at the Vietnam guys and you'd be like, "Those are some hard dudes." Yeah, like they're, they're they're just hard. And I think that right now you're seeing that in the American Special Operations. You look at guys that were during the surge. Mm-hmm. There's guys that were in the regular infantry that probably saw more combat than I did because they were in 2002, 2007 when we had 115,000 troops doing combat missions in Afghanistan. And right now we've got about 11 um, that are 90% inside of the wire. So yeah. I think that it's just, it's just an evolution that's natural and that we've had for since the dawning of war. I was talking to a mate the other day and we were talking about Afghanistan and, and he asked me what the problem was there and why we haven't solved it. And we've been there like best part of 20 years and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, listen, man, you know, World War II, four and a half years, commitment. You committed to that. Those countries committed yeah. their soldiers to that and they went and they did it until it was done. And and if you had told me in 2010, oh, you're going to Afghanistan for four years and to get the job done, I'd have gone, yeah, okay. If, if it's done in four years, I'm there. And I, I do think that that's half the problem is that this these six-month to eight-month to, to even in some cases 12-month rotations, you just, you just don't get the same battle plan. You don't get traction. We lose ground. And, there's, and the commitment isn't really there. Any, anything that's worth doing is worth doing properly and committing in the long term. And I think that in 2002, they should have just committed, you know, committed whole, and committed all these nations and gone there and to get the job done. Um, I mean, I, I saw Yeah, this, and I think yeah, go on. the climate right now and really the climate for the last number of years for at least America and really everyone has been advise and assist. Yeah. Um, so that's what the job is. The job is to go in and advise and assist, which is why you don't see – a strong SEAL population in combat in Afghanistan mm. because their mission is not advise and assist. It's strictly direct action for the most part. Yeah. Granted, there's some exceptions, but for the most part, that's how it is. And so when you have a rules of engagement that are advise and assist, that's what you're going to get. Yeah. So in terms of just the hierarchy of commitment, that's sort of on the low spectrum because that's, that's really just the appetite for risk that America yeah. has. Yeah, I remember in 2010 when the, the helicopter went down with the SEALs on it, I remember thinking to myself, what the hell is this? Why are we, we need, our whole armies need to be here. Like to lose that, to lose that many people, you know, it has to be worth it. It has to be worth it. And you have to go in there and and throw everything at it. Um, And, you know, and to put it into perspective, the difference between 2007 and 2010 was that one year we were fighting Al Qaeda and the next, and then in 2010, it was for the most part, it was, you know, farm boys you know, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same enemy. So we were definitely winning, but the problem, you know, every now and again, we we came across some Al Qaeda there. But I do think that the, when the surge went in, we should have it should have continued. Yeah, and I'll say that right now, the average Taliban fighter is 
the average Taliban fighter is a farmer mm. that lives in a, in a certain area that somebody comes and they pay him $25 to go put a bomb on a road and then mm. go back to his home. Yeah. That's like the average guy, yeah. period. Uh, now, you, granted, there's some you exceptions tell me, to that, obviously. you tell me we can't change that, you look at that. That that is yeah. a that is a person that we can we can influence economically, and I saw that the white space operations you can you can influence them economically. You can build roads for them, build schools. Like they, you just have to be the better alternative, you know. But the suicide bomber in two thousand and ten generally had hepatitis or AIDS, and was coming over from Pakistan. You could spot them a mile away, you know, and and they would if they weren't. They, it wasn't the same person. It wasn't the same combat. But I, I do think that. I don't know why they weren't listening to the ODAs more. And, and we brought a lot of information from the field that we actioned ourselves as well. And a lot of that information just got lost in their headquarters and they were they were fighting a completely different battle than what we really were fighting out there on the ground. That That's an issue that's probably going to always be there to some degree. I think there's always going to be a separation uh, from what you see and what you get and what's written down and what the changes are. Yeah. Hey, so Elite Meat, what's the future? Uh, I'm not sure. I just – I see – I saw 2019 expanding rapidly in terms of the employers and people that wanted to come in and be sponsors, large corporations, things like that. Um, I, I would love for the, the future to be in an international based situation. Mm. Um, I know that that's, that sounds easy, but that's a lot of work for us. I see continued response. Uh, we will never change our core demographics in terms of who we represent. Yeah. That's not going to evolve. Uh, it's going to be special operations. It's going to be fighter pilots and it's going to be the 1% that are just blown away, say, you know, a medal of honor winner or somebody that's like an actual monster that just happens to not be in special operations. Mm. Uh, that's never going to change. I think that that's really important for us to stick to who we are for branding purposes. Yep. Um, because that's who we are. But in terms of external corporations and companies that want to jump on board, I see that that has not slowed down at all in the early 2020s. And, um, I see a lot of involvement in pro sports on the American side uh, as we wrapped up 2019. Yeah. A lot of guys getting involved with elite meet that are, that are athletic. So we'll see how awesome. that goes. Awesome, Zach. I wish you all the best for it, mate. And if for the American listeners who would like to, because there is a, quite a few actually um, USSF guys who listen to this podcast. Um, I see that through the demographics um, and the messaging. Uh, if they want to reach out to you, how do they get hold of you? Yeah, so you can email me at z.hughes at elitemeet.us. Catch me on LinkedIn, huge on that, obviously. Yeah. Instagram, uh, and that's pretty much it. That's, those are pretty much the three to get a hold of me. All right, Zach, I want to thank you, man, for being a guest on the Warrior You podcast, and I'm, I know we'll, we'll talk again soon. Yeah, and I wish you, you know, all the best with your ongoing recovery, mate. And um, from one Australian SF guy to a ex-US SF guy, thanks for your service, brother. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. I love what you're doing. I kind of looked at some of your stuff a long time before you even talked, I think. Um, and I love it. You got a good product. I hope you keep it going. Thanks, man. And keep crushing it. We'll definitely keep in contact. Yep. All right. Righto. Thanks for listening, gang. If you'd like to find out about our parent company and the leadership and resilience training and workshops that they offer, please head to the Hindsight Leadership website, www.hindsightleadership.com. Hindsight Leadership, all one word. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, and remember, every dollar helps, you can do that through the podcast website at www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. There's a donation tab at the bottom of the main page, and all donations are really appreciated. They keep the show on the road. 
And if you're interested in the Warrior U military preparation course, whether that's just the physical training component or the whole cultural training package, this can also be found through the podcast website, www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. And just click on the training tab. Remember, we're going to be in Brisbane in 2020, in July, for a massive day of leadership and resilience training workshop and live podcast. So uh, keep it locked in your diary. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.